Romans chapter 8. I read beginning in verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would bless the reading of Your Word again and, and bless the preaching of Your Word. Feed us now and during this time reveal to us our hearts. Lord, so very often we don't, we don't realize and most certainly don't want to admit what is the problem with our hearts. What is the problem with us at all? But your word is always ready and willing and sharp and prepared to lay us open. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that for all of us here. None of us are uh, absolved of the natural problem that we face with regard to sin in our hearts. So teach us, Father. Teach us, Holy Spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, you'll remember last Lord's Day, I began a series of discussions on the Christian Sabbath. And my intention last week was just to set before your heart and before your mind the concept of a Sabbath and compare the biblical concept of a Sabbath with what seems to be the present religious position, the, 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 the standing of our culture with regard to the subject of a Sabbath. And so we saw that within all of the various prohibitions and all of the various instructions in God's law, the, all of these things that find their source or flow from the moral law as a fountain, the Ten Commandments, 
the most vile and offensive and abominable ways in which one could break God's law in Scripture were punishable by death under the Old Covenant. And we could trace those death penalties all the way back to every one of the Ten Commandments. And then we turned and we looked at the account given in Numbers chapter 15 of a man who was corporately bludgeoned to death with rocks by his people. Probably by some of his friends. More than likely with his wife and his children standing and watching. And all of that for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And the questions that I asked were these. Number one, how serious, based on that story and based on what we know about God's law, how serious do you think God takes the fourth commandment? And secondly, do you take the fourth commandment as seriously as God takes the fourth commandment? And I hope that you've taken some time to at least consider those questions. We've not gotten to the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath yet. I've not asked you to wrestle with any exegetical arguments or difficulties. I just want you to think within your heart, if God takes the Sabbath that seriously, or we might could even say it with the benefit of the doubt, if God took the Sabbath that seriously, then how then should I, as an image bearer of God, created to do His will and to honor Him in all of my life, how seriously should I take this commandment? Now you might not be convinced on, of the perpetuity of the commandment. That means that it lasts forever. Maybe you're not convinced that the Sabbath command is, is perpetual. That doesn't make any difference because God has included it in His Word. And all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for correction, for reproof, for teaching, for training in righteousness. We read in Psalm 1, "...the blessed man delights in the law of God and meditates on the law day and night." The Sabbath was a gift of God's grace and mercy to mankind for the good of mankind. But even if you believe that God has ungifted, let me, let me make this clear, this, is, this would be the position, that in the new covenant in Christ, God has ungifted this blessed day of rest from His people. It's still in His Word. It's still a topic of study. And a serious one at that. And so how much attention have you given to the study of the fourth commandment? We don't observe the yearly day of atonement either. But I would suggest that if you don't understand the day of atonement, you don't understand Christ's high priestly work. So we study it. And we've done that. We've, we've spent a Lord's Day looking at the day of atonement and the specific duties of the priest. Not because we're instituting the day of atonement, but because God said... All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, especially the man of God, but even more so the people of God. Do you take the fourth commandment as serious as God takes the fourth commandment? In whatever capacity you've decided the precept of the fourth commandment still exists, and almost everyone suggests that it still exists somehow, whether you say, well, Christ is my Sabbath, or, or Saturday is my Sabbath, or, or whatever, have you taken it as seriously as God takes it? I think that you will find that those who are the most dogmatic in asserting that God in the New Covenant has ungifted His blessed day of rest are those who have spent the least time devoted to the consideration and the meditation of God's law.
the least time. And you'll see and when you read their arguments, they're, they're simple proof text arguments. Look at one verse here and look at one verse here and look at one verse there and well there you go. There's the argument. They've not, they've not devoted themselves to deep and serious biblical study. Now we closed last week by looking at two introductory points. First, what we do not believe about the Christian Sabbath. And secondly, what we do believe about the Christian Sabbath. Let me read to you again from our confession, just two paragraphs. Here's what we believe and confess as a congregation. Chapter 22 and paragraph 7, As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. By the way, all of the men yesterday morning agreed that's true. So by His Word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. The next paragraph, chapter 22, paragraph 8, the Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord, when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of His, that would be God's worship, and in the duties of necessity and mercy. That's what we confess that's what we believe the Bible teaches. And I close with this text from the Gospel according to Isaiah. Let me read it for you very... Just listen closely. We could start by saying, how seriously did God take the fourth commandment? Now let's ask, how seriously did Isaiah the prophet take the fourth commandment? Speaking on behalf of the Lord. He says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." I suggested last week that all of the reasons for debate and controversy could be summed up under two headings. First, the natural problem, and second, the hermeneutical problem. And what I want to begin to do is open up those two problems in the next several discussions, beginning tonight with the natural problem. Why is there so much debate, so much controversy, so much disagreement with regard to the doctrine of the Sabbath? First, here's the natural problem. I'll give you my assertion and then I'll defend it from Scripture. Every unregenerate man is at enmity with God and naturally opposed to the law of God. Because this is true... He will not, nor is He able to bring Himself to be governed by it at all. 
I'll say that one more time. Every unregenerate man is at enmity with God and naturally opposed to the law of God. Because this is true, he will not, nor is he able to bring himself to be governed by it at all. Now, how did I get that? Well, let's look at the text that I've already read, specifically Romans 8 and verse 7. And that assertion is simply the uh, conclusion to the, the following exposition. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Notice first, the person under consideration here and their spiritual condition. The person under consideration and their spiritual condition. Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh. Now the word for the mind is a reference to the thoughts. Your meditations, the ways that you think. The perspective by which you understand yourself and the world. Your mental perception of things. And of course, we all know that a mind does not exist alone. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl has a mind. And so when Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh, he's not talking about some inanimate object. He's talking about a person with the specific mental activity. Everyone has a mind. All of you have a mind. The person under consideration here has their mind set on the flesh. That is, their thoughts, their meditations, their ways of thinking, the perspective from which they view the, themselves and the world and God, all of their mental activity, it is set on the flesh. In our modern vernacular, we use the phrase mindset. I'm trying to get in the right mindset. And you know what that means. It's a, it's a peculiar bent in your thinking. You're trying to settle your brain down into a specific form and let it, let it rest in that way of thinking, that perspective. Well, this person has their mind set down, set, fixed, bent on the flesh. The word flesh here is that physical nature of man that is opposed to the spiritual nature of a person in Christ. The, the word is not the word for meat or skin, but sarks, the, the physical nature opposed to the spiritual nature. So this person that Paul describes, the mind that is set on the flesh, this is a person who still has their mind grounded in the old Adamic nature. They are governed by sin in their reasoning and in their thinking. In Galatians, Paul compares the flesh versus the spirit very well. In Galatians 5, we have the works of the flesh compared over against the fruit of the spirit. The works of the flesh, he says, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's the flesh. That's what the flesh produces. Compare that with the next two verses. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
the works of the flesh over against the fruit of the Spirit. The mind that is set on the flesh is set, is governed by, is, is, has its bent towards all of those works of the flesh in the mind. We could compare this concept and these words over against what he says immediately following in verse 9 of this same chapter. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. You, referring to the Roman Christians, you are not in the flesh, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. So there he lays it out very clearly. In the flesh, mindset on the flesh, unregenerate person. In the Spirit, mindset on the Spirit, born-again Christians. And so to say the very least, when Paul describes or uses this phrase, the mind that is set on the flesh, he's describing the condition, the mental condition of every unregenerate man. Every man in Adam. Every man sold under sin. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl that is continuing in the domain of darkness. Their spiritual state is lost. Paul's talking about a lost person. A person who lives in that condition is a lost person. Well, secondly, no, notice what he says about this person. The, the essential characteristic of this spiritual state. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's the essential characteristic of one whose mind is set on the flesh. This person in their mind, in their thinking, is hostile to God. Not neutral. Not apathetic. It's not as though they don't really have a position. It's not, I don't really try to take sides here or there. It's not that. They are against God. They oppose God. They are His enemies. In other words, the battle lines have been drawn. They see God on one side and they have chosen to stand on the other side and oppose God as His enemy. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul had already written that God gave them up to a debased mind and then later they are haters of God. That's how he describes these people. And Christ said, whoever is not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. There are two classes of people, two races of people. There are those who are unregenerate, at enmity with God, hostile to God, haters of God. They are against Christ. And then there are those who are born again. Those who side with the Spirit of God, who love the Lord, who are working with Christ, gathering with Him. Two types of people. The person in question here is an unregenerate person. We know this from this essential characteristic. He's at enmity with God. He is an enemy of God. His mind is set on the flesh. He's at enmity with God. Now thirdly, notice the evidence displaying this essential characteristic. The evidence displaying this essential characteristic. The essential characteristic of the unregenerate man is that he is hostile to God. He is intentionally of his own accord at enmity with God. But what does this look like? How do we know this? Does he wear shirts that say God with a circle and a slash through it? And so we know oh, that guy is against God. Does he carry signs that say at enmity with God? 
Does he walk around, you know, like the lepers of old? They would cover their mouth and say unclean. Does he cover his mouth and say against God? No. What does it say? What do we look for? He's hostile to God for it, that was this person in his mind, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The word submit here is the same word used in Ephesians, hupotasso, for husband or wives, submit to your own husbands. It means to bring oneself under the leadership or under the tutelage of another. To willingly, voluntarily, of your own accord, come under the guidance and supervision of someone else. And it says the evidence of this unregenerate's mind being hostile to God is displayed in two ways. First, the failure to submit. The mind set on the flesh, the mind of the unregenerate man, Paul says, does not submit to God's law. This is a statement concerning the active decision of his mind. He does not. He might as well be like our children when we tell them to do something and they say, No. That's this man. He does not submit. The action is in the negative. He is not coming under the guidance of God's law. Now as an aside, is it not amazing that what Paul describes here as the activity and the, the display of the mind of an unregenerate man is the very thing the antinomian claims as his liberty in Christ. The antinomian says, well, the new covenant Christian is no longer bound to submit to God's law. Indeed, he is free from doing so. Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Either submitting to God's law is a good thing, or submitting to God's law is a bad thing. I think Paul would say, you should submit to God's law. The unregenerate man, hostile to God, doesn't submit. The second thing that is displayed here, not only does he... Uh, is there a failure to submit, but there's actually the inability to submit. The mind is set on the flesh, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Very often in Scripture, you'll see the word power, like the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The word used for power there is the word from which we get our word dynamite. Dunamai, the word here for it cannot is actually the negation of that word. What, it's, what, what Paul's saying is, indeed, it does not have the power to submit to God's law. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it doesn't even have the power to submit to God's law. It's not, he's not talking about possibility. Is it possible? He's talking about capability. It's not only that he won't submit, it's that he's not able. He can't. It's not either or, it's both. No, he does not submit. No, he cannot submit. And he's not able to plead with the Lord, well, I cannot, so why would you hold it against me that I do not? God would say, because you do not. Not only does he not, but he cannot. Not only can he not, but he does not. 
So, to sum up the exposition, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In other words, every unregenerate man is at enmity with God and naturally opposed to the law of God. Because this is true, he will not, nor is he able to bring himself to be governed by it at all. Now when we begin to think about that and we see these words, evangelical curse words like God's law, we begin to see how this might apply. We have to remember what Scripture lays out regarding God's law. For example, the various expressions of the law and means of obedience to the law. The Decalogue, Ten Commandments, the Ten Words written by God on Adam's heart, written by God's own finger on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai, etched on the heart of every saint. It was never meant to be understood in this reductionistically or reductionistic way based on the simple statements given at Sinai, recorded in Exodus 20, and that's it. If Jesus taught anything in the Sermon on the Mount, it was that the law of God was far more than they thought it was, not less. Now they had added to it. The scribes and the Pharisees had greatly expounded on their understanding of the law and had made rule after rule after rule. Jesus didn't come and say, you've got the law wrong. It's not near that much. He said it's far more than you ever imagined. See, they had all added all these things to the law but they never understood its true meaning. In other words, they had the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Jesus taught that the law of God was positive, that there were commands about what to do positively. Even if the law was stated in the negative, you shall not tell a lie. That also assumes the positive, you must tell the truth. Jesus taught the law was negative. It prohibited certain actions even if the command was stated positively. Honor your father and your mother assumes do not dishonor your father and your mother. That the law was external. It dealt with real actions, what you do with your body. But it was also internal. It dealt with the heart attitude with which those actions were to be carried out. It was both positive, negative, external, internal. All of it was assumed under the law of God. We have to remember that. All of that. Jesus said it's far more than they ever thought it was. And the natural man we've just learned is unwilling and unable to submit to God's law at every one of those points. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Not in its positive commands and precepts. Not in its negative prohibitions. Not in its external performance. Not in its internal motivations and affections. The mind set on the flesh cannot do any of it. Because it's all one. And then he goes on to say, Indeed, it cannot. He's not able to submit to the positive commands and precepts of God's law. 
He's not able to submit to negative prohibitions. He's not able to perform external rites. He's not able to bring up or swell up within himself the internal motivations and affections. The natural unregenerate man is unwilling and unable at every point. Positive, negative, external, internal. We add to that what we know about the depravity of man. Namely, that the natural man is totally depraved. This condition of the unregenerate man's refusal to and inability to submit to God's law in every expression is not just in his mind. It's not limited just to the way he thinks. He's affected heart, mind, and body. The, the unregenerate man, heart, mind, and body, is dead set against the law of God. So in his heart, in his affections, he does not love to submit to God's law. He does not see how God's law could be a gracious gift. He, he can't even understand how obeying God could benefit him. The law of God is to him a bondage, a burden. It's an evil thing. The law of God is seen as an unfriendly gesture by an unloving taskmaster who's just trying to, to hold him down. He can't find anything in his affections that can even begin to relate to obedience to God and love to God. He can't find it in his heart to relate these ideas of God's law and God's love for me. He has no basis for that connection. None whatsoever. And in his body, he's dead set against God's law. His body craves sexual pleasure, and he cannot comprehend how chastity and purity and faithfulness are a good thing. He can't, he can't imagine how that could possibly be good. He wants to have what others have, and he feels that he's going to be incomplete or, or unsatisfied without it. He's going to have to undergo some sort of physical discomfort if he obeys God, that some physical pleasure is going to come upon him if he obeys God's commands. And that physical pleasure will only be found outside of God's commands. Heart, mind, bodily, totally willing, totally unable at every point. If you're not born again, that's your spiritual condition. Regardless of whatever outward formalism you might be able to produce or claim, this is what God says about you. He sees you as one who is at enmity with Him. And on Judgment Day, He's not going to say, Look, you know, we had our, we had our ways. We, we didn't get along. I know for a while you were against me. But look, we've got eternity ahead of us. Let's just squash this and let's just move on. He's not going to say that. He's not going to say anything different than He says here. And he's going to add to it, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Only in Christ Jesus is the problem of the natural heart reconciled. Christ kept the whole law for His people and took the punishment due their sins. The natural man is totally depraved. Every part of his body is affected with sin. And he is against God's law. Now, if you have been born again of God's Spirit, you, you would say, I am a Christian. Then this is, where we, this is where you come in. The remnants of this principle remain, even in the heart of the redeemed. 
That is, this antipathy toward God's law, the roots of your Adamic nature and the sin that it produces are still there. Now to clarify, it's not the governing principle. It does not control the believer. It has no power over the believer. But there is still a war to be fought against the remnant of indwelling sin. The classic text from this is from Romans 7. And I'll read this to you. This is the Apostle Paul's testimony. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I want, what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh... For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's the mark of a saint. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, Paul had wants and he had hates. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He wanted to submit. He wanted to obey. And he's waging this war in his flesh. The roots of your Adamic nature and the sin produced by those roots still remain. And that goes for every law of God. Every expression of God's law, somewhere there's a root that wants to grow up and take over. This remains in you. These little roots of antipathy toward God's law. So as a believer, you might perform externally. But internally, your heart struggles to, to find the right motivation. Maybe you would never murder anyone, but you kind of feel the temptation to hate somebody. You'd never steal something tangible, but you'll waste hours of your, employment, your employer's money. You won't tell an outright lie, but you withhold some of the truth to protect your reputation. Every law of God, every expression of God's law... For all of these, there remains in the heart of the believer the ability and the temptation to buck against God's law. And this is exactly why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul was a fighter. Paul was bivocational. We should try vocational. He was a preacher, a tent maker, and a fighter, a boxer. He pummeled his body into submission. He was constantly waging war against his flesh. He would feel it creeping in. And then spiritually, he would begin to hack off hands and gouge out eyeballs, whatever it took to put to death the deeds of his flesh and bring himself into the submission of God's law. Every unregenerate man is at enmity with God and naturally opposed to the law of God. Because that's true, 
He will not, nor is He able to bring Himself to be governed by it. And the remnants of that same principle remain even in the heart of the redeemed. If you don't know that, you're not going to be fighting. You're not going to be watching. And all of that is true for the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. That's our natural problem with regard to this doctrine. You will make no headway until you acknowledge the problem of the remnants of indwelling sin. You cannot move forward until you will acknowledge that there's a fight that has to be fought. There's a war that must be waged. Now just a, a few points of self-examination by way of application. Again, I'm just trying to get you to think. Before we begin to discuss the doctrine, I just want you to think and consider your heart and your mind on the issue. If we get through all of this and we all agree none of us are willing to submit to God's law and we don't want to hear what He has to say, we won't have to go any further. We won't have to move into exegetical arguments if we don't get settled here. First, have you been born again? That's the first and most important question. Now last week I clarified, we do not believe that observance of the Christian Sabbath is required for salvation. The question is often form, formed that way. Are, are New Covenant believers required to keep the Sabbath? What do you mean required for what? It, it makes it sound like somebody believes that obedience to the law can earn someone's salvation. And this is true for every law. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But you can't start with obedience and then hope that at some point it's going to lead to regeneration. And the last thing we want in this church is a bunch of unconverted Sabbath keepers who are, who are impregnable to truth because, well, they keep the Sabbath. That's not what we want. You have to start with the new birth. You must be born again. The unregenerate man is hostile to God. You must be born again. The requirement of God's law is perfection. Positive, negative, internal, external, perfection at every point. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the, of the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You must be holy as the Lord your God is holy. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is perfect. And you've already failed because you're a sinner against God. Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, God in human flesh, has already satisfied that perfect requirement in the place of ruined sinners. Then He suffered God's wrath in the place of sinners on the cross. And then He rose from the grave three days later as a testimony of the work of reconciliation. Herein lies our salvation. It's in Christ, not Sabbath keeping. You have to start here. Your job is to turn from your sins and trust in this work of Christ and the Christ of the work who's accomplished the work. Scripture's clear. If you'll believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. No one has ever come to Christ and He said, I'm sorry, I'm busy saving somebody else right now. Never. 
And of all that He saves, He's not going to lose a single one. That's the first step. You must be born again. And so search your heart. Perhaps through this study, your, your present carelessness or apathy toward the law of God, will, 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 the Spirit will use that to show you you've never been born again. You're unregenerate. How do you feel about the law of God? God said for His people He would put His Spirit within them and write His law on their hearts. Why do I hate His law? The only answer can be I've never been born again. I've never been converted. Have you been born again? Secondly, is there any sign of fight within your members? Is there any sign of fight? Or again, in the modern vernacular, is there any fight left in you? Maybe you're born again. That doesn't mean you're sinless. There's always going to be this remnant of indwelling sin. Nobody's disputing that. I'm not asking. Raise your hand if you have indwelling sin left in you. We would all raise our hands. Now, a lot of us like to act like it's not there or talk like it's not there or just stay quiet as if everybody's going to assume that it's not there. We all know it's there. We all have that in our members. What I'm asking is, is there any fight? Are you waging war? Are you buffeting your body? Are you catching roots of bitterness towards God's law as they sprout and hacking them to pieces as you see them sprout? Is there any struggle, any hatred for sin? Can you say from the heart, I do not understand my own actions? For I do not do what I want and I do the very thing I hate. I just don't understand. As long as there is fight, as long as there's war being raged, there's reason to believe the Spirit is working. And as soon as you give up that fight, as soon as you let sin overtake you, you're on the road to apostasy. When you stop fighting. So is there any fight? Examine yourself. Am I fighting not fighting for moralism, not fighting for external rights. Are you fighting to mortify your flesh out of a sense of love for and holy fear of God and of Christ? Fighting because He's worthy of your fight. Is there any fight? We use that language all the time. Well, you pray for me, brother. I'm really struggling with so and so. And you're not struggling at all. There's no struggle. As Paul would say, you've not even struggled to the point of shedding your blood. We don't even struggle to the point of sweating or, or you know, whatever we might shed. There has to be fight. And then thirdly, all I'm asking in this study is that you would join me in that fight. As we walk through these discussions with regard to the Christian Sabbath, I'm just saying, wage war against the flesh not for the flesh. We've already determined your natural tendency is opposed to God's law. And we can all rest assured, everybody, we can breathe a sigh of relief. Now we all know that naturally we are opposed to God's law. There's no question there. With regard to the Christian Sabbath, everybody in the room already knows that everybody else's natural disposition is opposed to God's law. We're clear with that. Naturally, we all hate it. We've all got better ideas. We're all unclear about how it works. Every one of us from birth are fairly certain we could have come up with a better scheme than God. Every one of us are thinking, well, surely one day in eight or one day in nine or one day in four. God, if it were me, I would have said one day in three because I want to worship you so much. We all think naturally we've got better schemes than God. We're clear on that. What I'm saying is fight that. 
Settle it in your minds. I'm going to fight tooth and nail for what is most honorable to God. What is most conformed to His standards? What is most spiritually beneficial for my soul? What is most edifying for my family and for my children? I want you to say that you will fight to see the law of the Spirit of life prevail in your heart and in your mind and in your body and in your family as it regards the Christian Sabbath. If we can all agree on that, that that's all I ask. That's, that's as far as I can go. I cannot convict of sin. I cannot force anyone to conform themselves to God's standards. All I'm asking is that if you've been born again, if there's any fight left in you, then with regard to this specific area, just fight. And we'll all, I'm, I would imagine we're all going to end up in about the same place. Well, let's pray, and then we will stand and we'll sing a couple more songs together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you would, you would make these things so clear and so evident to us, that you've not left us as if we were sick and without remedy and without assessment, without diagnosis. You have very clearly, very simply, very efficiently diagnosed our problems and shown us exactly what we need. You have you've even shown us the cure. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would come and be the great physician of souls. And we ask that you would help us in this fight. Holy Spirit, give us strength. We know that our flesh always has better ideas, always thinks better, always wants to tell us that the, the same lie that the devil told Eve in the garden, that God was not good, that God was trying to keep her under his thumb, so on and so forth. These things, Lord, they still swell up in our hearts. Help us to fight. I pray that we would be a fighting people, that may we, we get to the end of our road bruised, scarred, battered, tired, wore out, because we have fought the good fight, not drifted the lazy river. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name we pray.